Listener Production. Car Sales acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Well, my Toyota Corolla was close to 15 years old when I sold it secondhand and it was still running perfectly then. I'm not too sure if electric cars have the same shelf life and, like, do they depreciate the same? With monthly sales of new EVs in Australia on a seriously sharp rise, more and more consumers are thinking about this a lot. Buying and selling secondhand, the value of EVs and what we can expect the market to look like in the future. I guess it all comes down to how affordable electric cars are not just for the likes of people who drive them, but for the economy as a whole, I suppose. So I guess I'd want to know how electric is the future actually going to be, really? We can say with confidence the future is electric, but the economics of the global market have a lot to do with battery composition. Who's building them? Where are the components coming from? And is this sustainable long term? G'day everybody, Greg Rust and Dean Armstrong with you for another edition of the Automotive Pod, unlike any other in this space, dedicated to EVs. We call it What's Under the Bonnet. Hello, you. Hello, Rusty. What kind of keys keys have you got this month? What are you test driving? I am in an EV, of course. Happy days. Um, I'm in the Hyundai Ioniq 5, and this is the, the sort of second generation of this vehicle. It came out in 2021. It literally stormed onto the Aussie market. Supply could not keep up with demand, and, and it's still the case now, a couple of years later. It's a good car. Now, I've been in a Nissan Leaf. How's this? I, my regular car was getting a service, so they've got a fleet of them. That's clever, don't you reckon, That's to good. try and convince people, get them to sample, try, yeah. if they're not on the EV bandwagon. Yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure there's probably a few Leafs knocking around these days. Had a, uh, had a nice day in that. Kids loved it. Now, new releases, tech innovations, and real-world owners, plus discussion around everything that complements EV conversation. That's what this pod is more or less about. We have tackled home charging, how the grid will cope, even range anxiety very on for newcomers. And today we're going to look at secondhand cars, stuff to kind of be mindful of or consider, and importantly, how much they're worth. Absolutely. Hey, Rusty, I was going to ask, did you do chemistry at school? I was terrible. I mean, blowing things up with a Bunsen burner. Why doesn't that surprise me? (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about battery components. We've talked a lot about charging and so on, but we're going to talk about where they come from and importantly, how they're sourced and what needs to happen to ensure that supply chain, you know, can it cope with the demand we're talking about? This is going to explode in Aussie and globally. So, you know, how can they advance that and keep the batteries current? And is the technology itself progressing? What's, what's happening in this space? I sense our guest is very wise and I'm worried our combined effort may not match his. <laughs> but anyway, we'll get to that. Our meet and EVA is keen on track days, properly knows about EVs too. We'll chat with him shortly. Big fan of the show. That's how you could be a part of that segment. Incidentally, we've been getting people sending DMs and things that would like to come on. We'd love to know your story. Now, we'll talk news a bit later in the podcast, but Sinkers, Mike Sinclair's done a walk around of the 2023 Hyundai Kona Electric. Now, good friend Sammy Charlwood has checked out the cool new Cupra Born. You can see those videos on the car sales site and in our electric vehicle hub, how safe is your EV and why EV ownership is easier than ever. 
Our first guest is Ross Booth. He's the Global General Manager of Red Book. He has over 30 years' experience in the auto industry across product, marketing, communications, regional sales and automotive finance and motorsport. Ross, welcome to What's Under the Bonnet. Thank you, Nadine. It's fantastic to be here. Is there anything you haven't done? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it just says how old I am more than anything. It also shows a love of the the industry. Nadine and I are are doing a a kind of deep dive for our listeners into the, the secondhand market and how EVs fit into that now and into the future. Tell us more about Redbook for any listeners who may not be, we're familiar with it naturally, but for listeners that aren't. Yeah, no problems. Redbook is a very old brand in Australia, starting in the 1940s, so over 70 years' experience in, in the Australian car research market. So Redbook researches motor vehicle identification, specifications, and pricing, both used pricing and forecast pricing. Uh, interesting for Redbook is the fact that then that data is then used by the entire automotive ecosystem. So redbook.com.au is our, our consumer website that people can go and do their own research with cars, but all of our data is also used by insurance companies, finance companies, government departments, etc. And the great thing about Redbook is, yes, we've been in Australia for 70 years, but we've also been global in the Asia-Pacific region for over 20 years, which okay. includes such countries as China, New Zealand, and Thailand, which mm. gives us great access to what's happening in those markets to mm. also help us in the Australian market. Online now, but it really was a red book back in the day, wasn't yeah, it? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, we only actually got rid of the red books about four years ago. So when I got there, there was lots of red books going on <laughs> and we're now just, just purely digital. Shall we start with some real basics of sort of understanding the, the secondhand market? And I guess it comes back to the, the old scenario of supply and demand really, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. All markets go by the basic economic principles of demand and supply. Mm-hmm. So the output really is the price. So when demand for a vehicle goes up and supply remains the same, then prices go up. Mm. When supply goes down and demand remains the same, again, prices go up. And one thing that's actually missed with the used prices that have gone up since COVID is an actual fact in the first three months of the COVID-19 situation happening in March 2020, we had the biggest decrease in used car prices in Australian history. And that was just due to perception of the main buyers of cars Mm. being dealers, believing that there was not going to be any consumer demand. Mm. So it's all Mm. perception. Mm. And they didn't didn't actually buy some cars. So the prices dropped. What then happened over over the last two to three years is those used prices have increased. Mm. And they've increased because demand increased due to the fact that consumers wanted to buy cars. No one wanted to be on public transport. They wanted that second car and third car. And also the supply decreased substantially. So for the first time in a very long time in the Australian market, we had that double-edged sword Mm. of both the demand and the supply actually changing. And we had that massive change in relation to used car prices. We had a listener, listener Mike, leave us a bit of mail that we thought we would get you to answer because it kind of sums up perfectly the concerns. It's not the bosses. It's not Mike Sinclair. No, no. no. (laughs) (laughs) It sums up a lot of the concerns that people have with the secondhand EV market. So let's have a little listen to this snippet. Hi, guys. If you're buying a secondhand EV, is the battery the biggest thing to worry about? Is it the most expensive part to change? And is there any sort of signs that you can see how long you got left in it. And if it's really expensive to change over, is it worth just buying a brand new car instead of a second hand and changing the battery? 
The million dollar question. question. <laughs> yeah, looks a great question and one I think I could write a book on with, with, with how in-depth that answer could be. Not but a red book. Not a red book. I'd put it online anyway rather than, <laughs> rather than write a book. Um, one of the issues with a EV or even a hybrid is the battery. Mm. So batteries do have a life, whether it's your phone, whether it's your computer, they do have an end of life. How long that is tends to be 15, 20 years, but they do have a life. And for an EV, it is a substantial amount of the vehicle. Let's call it between 20 and 40% of the value. So when you have a, a substantial value that actually has an end of life, depending on how long you keep that vehicle, it's going to impact the used value. Now, if you have a look at the Australian used car market, there aren't too many used EVs around that are eight or 10 years of age. Most EVs actually have a warranty for their battery of eight years. Mm -hmm. So I look at it and go, yes, it is a concern. But if you're going to buy a used EV and keep it for a few years, if it's a couple of years old, it's not a major concern that should actually stop you looking at a used EV. One of the things you should do when you're buying a used car is always get an independent Assessment. inspection. Mm, mm. And there's a couple of companies out there that do one. One is actually called Red Book Inspect yep. that has expertise to look at EVs, to look at those things such as the battery, how it's been recharged, and importantly, what that range is. Can I pose a question, particularly thinking about resale values? We talk about when you buy an EV, it's like you're buying a piece of technology. So how do things like over-the-air updates change that? Does that mean your vehicle will be relevant for longer and how does that impact secondhand values? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting direction that the industry is going in compared with an ICE vehicle. And that is EVs can actually have an update over the air improving the technology. One of the things with EVs that people want is they actually don't see it as a car. They see it as a technological purchase, mm. a bit like an iPhone. And that's what we tend to see with EVs is there's that need and want for a new EV, that mm. new technology, rather than the older technology. And the iPhone's the best example I can use. That's a great example. One of the other things that people factor into their buying decision is cost of ownership. And comparisons for those that maybe aren't EV owners relative to, to ICE vehicles, beyond kind of fueling and so on, there's tyres, servicing, insurance, finance, those sorts of considerations, isn't there? Yeah, there is. So from a total cost of ownership perspective, um, there's a number of items that go into when you own a vehicle and finance is one of them. So from a finance perspective, the cost of financing a traditional ICE vehicle and EV is effectively the same. Same, okay. An insurance perspective to insure an EV is actually more expensive. So the Insurance Council Australia estimates that at about 20% more expensive. From a servicing perspective, which cheaper. is another big cost. Mm. Yeah, it's cheaper, cheaper. right? Mm. Um, and in some cases, that's, that, it's actually free. It's included in the actual price of the vehicle, such as a Polestar. Mm. Uh, for others, the Tesla actually tells you when to actually get it serviced. So really cool technology that, that, that Nadine was talking about. Tyres is a more difficult one. Depends how you actually drive the vehicle. Mm. So let's keep that one as even. Okay. Uh, but the biggest cost is, w w without a doubt, is the two, which is the fuel, mm -hmm. compared with actually charging. And obviously, charging should be cheaper than fuel, depending on the price of electricity. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's such a individual aspect when you charge a vehicle. Do you do it at home? Do you do it at work? Do you have to pay for it mm -hmm. at, at different charges? So it's very hard to work that one out. Mm -hmm. 
The number one, though, is depreciation. It's when you go to sell that vehicle, it's how much it drops in the used car market compared with the new car price. Mm. And historically, EVs have depreciated more than traditional ICE vehicles. Okay. Do you think that'll change? I mean, with take-up and popularity and so on? Yeah, it will change. It may take a little while. And the best example I use is hybrid vehicles. Mm -hmm. Hybrids have been in the Australian market for over 20 years. It took 20 years for hybrids to actually get parity with depreciation with ICE vehicles. And the reason for that was originally when hybrids came out, they had a large price premium, Mm -hmm. about 20 to 30% had unknown technology, and the fact that the new hybrid technology was coming through all of the time. But now it's known quantity 20 years on, isn't it? But now it's known mm. qual- a, a very known quantity. In actual fact, there is no price premium now of very little, 1% to 2% when you buy a hybrid. Mm-hmm. If you have a Toyota, which is about 90% of all hybrids in the Australian market, is Toyota hybrid resale values are higher for a hybrid than what they are for the equivalent ICE vehicle. So they've actually changed and Mm. they've changed what the market is. So will EVs change? Absolutely 100%. Mm. How long do you think it's going to take for Australia to have a healthy secondhand EV market? Yeah, good question. And and, and healthy is an interesting word. (laughs) (laughs) A (laughs) well-populated. So where used cars come from is from new cars, from from new car sales. And up until April uh, this year, New EVs are at 7% of the total market, which is great. We're starting to get there. In 2022, it was 3.6%. But if I go back and look at the used car market, let's say what most people would look at, a three-year-old to six-year-old car, you compare how many were actually sold in the used market, and you're talking about 0.05%. There's just not many of them. Mm -hmm. So what you need is you need a lot of those new cars coming in to the used car market. We are getting more models all of the time. Uh, in 2021, there was 21 new car EVs available for sale in Australia. 2022 was 42, that doubled in one year. This year, we're predicting 65, so another 20 models. So what will happen is more models will come in that will increase the range in the new car market, which will flow into the used car market. And it is interesting, it's 70% of all EV sales up until 2021 were Teslas. Mm. If you look now in 2022 and 2023, it's dropped to 60%, but it's still 60%. Tesla absolutely dominates the Australian market. So that will change over time. More choice for customers Growth will actually Polestar come through. Polestar and other brands and so on, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and there's some fantastic EVs coming in, and you mm. mentioned Polestar. Redbook looks at the market, and we actually separate EV into two categories. We separate it into a technology and a premium category, above that 60,000 mark and more of of a pragmatic green category under the 60,000. And it's important that that you actually look at the market like that because what a lot of people want at the moment is that technology market, the Polestar, as you mentioned, Mm. the Tesla. The pragmatic market under 60,000 is the one that's growing. There's vehicles such as the MG ZS, there's vehicles such as the BYD Atto. And so far this year, that green market represents about 20% of new car sales. So that's going to continue to grow. So it's not just the volume that comes in, it's the type of vehicles that come in. That, that kind of leads us to government and what role government can do here in relation to uh, everything from fleets, policy and so on. Yeah, look, governments worldwide influence automotive markets. So government policies overnight can actually change a market. Mm. And, and we've seen that 
in, in New Zealand uh, recently that they New Zealand put in a green emission standard, which changed significantly. Significantly, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the amount of people buying Utes, like the Australian market, uh, decreased substantially. And the number one vehicle in New Zealand last year, uh, it, from an SUV and passenger vehicle perspective, was an Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid. In Australia, we sold 600 of them. <laughs> they sold 6,000 of them because of the government policy. policy. Mm. So government policy will help dictate the market. I've heard you share a uh, theory around government fleet, their approach to... <laughs> you're laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd love you to, to uh, you know, just... Just speak off the top of your head. Yeah, well, I, I'm laughing at you because I think I've got a tax audit coming up. So, so, <laughs> so, so, so let me go through my government theory. One of the key items from a uh, total cost of ownership perspective with, with all vehicles, but for EVs, is depreciation. And there's a lot of demand for EVs that customers actually can't get. So the government's actually taking that demand out because they're buying them. So is there a way to actually reverse it? And rather than the government buying a new vehicle and then the vehicle depreciate, depreciating in three years, let's call it 50%, actually protect that 50% depreciation via a guaranteed value and the government buys the second vehicle. So what they're doing is they're propping up the used car market by allowing people to buy new cars, guaranteeing the future value, which from, from a finance perspective decreases the payments, mm-hmm. increases people's affordability. The government then drives used cars, not new cars, but used cars. And then that creates this secondary market down here that gives customers a lot of surety on mm. what their vehicles are going and to be affordability worth. too. Affordability. Mm. And then the government drives secondhand cars. So how do we actually reverse them a little bit rather than put subsidies on top to then turn around and go, okay, how do we actually fundamentally change this so that, that we can get consumers into vehicles and control one of those key things, which is depreciation. I would love to know what our listeners think of this. Yeah, great. I would really love it, as well as some government people, perhaps. You've been fascinating, uh, and we could talk forever on this subject. Most importantly, it's been a great tool for me when I've bought cars, no doubt Nadine as well. For people that are listening that haven't perhaps used Redbook before, how's the best way they can go about using it? Yep, redbook.com.au. It's a very simple, easy website to use. The market, both new and used, is highly volatile and highly charged and, and and highly changing. So always do your research, do it online, look at Red Bull, look at car sales, and so many great cars to mm. drive and mm. buy, right? We, we, we live in a very fascinating time. We do. Great tips. Thank you very much for coming into the studio today and, uh, and sharing those with our audience. No problems. Thank you. We love to meet EVers on this pod, not just industry people or journos who are fortunate to test drive them. Today's guest is actually an avid listener of the podcast, and he knows a thing or two about cars and electrification. I like him already. So do I. Simon (laughs) Willis, welcome to What's Under the Bonnet. Thanks, Rusty. Hey, Nadine. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself first? We know that you're a bit of a car fanatic, and we hear that you've even got a 1992 Nissan Skyline GTR in the garage. I mean, tell us about that as well. Sure do, yep. Always been a bit of a car fan. Um, So I live in Brizzy. I'm a father of two. Like I said, always been into performance cars, mainly the Japanese turbocharged varieties. The pinnacle for me was always the Nissan Skyline GTR. That's the famous Godzilla that obliterated the racing world in the early 90s. 
So I always wanted one of those and luckily I picked one up about seven years ago. A couple of years back, I pulled it off the road and did a partial restoration of it myself. Oh, that would have been and, nice and um, cheap for you. Yeah, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> hey, in telling your story and, and the kind of move into EVs while still keeping that, that passion for traditional cars, if you will, we really need to talk about your work and, and a significant change you made work-wise in, in recent years too. That's right, yeah. So I'm an electronics engineer by training, but well over a decade ago, I moved straight into the mining world. But I always wanted to do something about decarbonisation. It was always in the back of my mind. And uh, I had a couple of kids and 2019 came along and I thought, right, I'm going to do something about this. First, I put solar on my roof, then I managed to get a new job. And I'm now an electronics engineer for a Brisbane-based company called Redback Technologies. And uh, we design battery and solar solutions for Australian homes. So I really went all in. Um, You've certainly gone full circle there. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. So you did that. That was your work life. But tell us about the switch to an EV. So clearly you've you know your turbocharged life was uh, <laughs> dominating and up until 2019 when when did you change into your ev and, and what was really that tipping point for you uh for me it was i guess i came to redback i learned about batteries and i wanted to i guess walk the talk if that's the right word right in the middle of covid i dived right in and i bought a secondhand uh 2016 tesla model s from melbourne spotted it on carsales.com and it's been perfect. How did you find that whole process of buying a, a secondhand EV? And are there things for our listeners that maybe you need to be a little bit mindful of? Yeah, I did a little bit of research about it before jumping in. Great thing about EVs is there's not much that goes wrong on them. Mm. There's there's no engine oil and coolant and you know fuel injectors and all that sort of stuff. It's a battery and a motor and a bunch of electrical bits. So I did a bit of research. There's a couple of little things on Model S's to look look out for, things like door handles and headlights, um, and mm-hmm. that's about it. So all I did was a video with the owner. He did a video, <laughs> walked around the car, and look at it. It looks good. It's got a scratch here. Okay, cool. And um, it arrived, and it was as shown on the video. It had no, no worries at all. Awesome. How did it compare? What were your first impressions? What did you think when you were driving it? Oh, that um, initial off the line, you put your boot down, that instant response, it, yeah, it blew my mind a bit. Um, used to turbo cars where you put your foot down and then you make a cup of and tea. Wait. <laughs> turbo <laughs> spills off and then, and then you plunge it back in the seat, whereas the EV is just instant. It's pretty amazing. So we have heard your little rumour around taking the Model S on a racetrack. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Tell us about that day. Tell all us right, tell us all so, about it. So I was just doing a, a small track day. It was a Carnacross day at Lakeside Motorway just north of Brisbane. It was just timed against the clock and I rocked up early in my GTR and I did the first session or two and the GTR overheated. <laughs> And my wife arrived with the kids in the Model S. And um, I'm like, well, the GTR's off the road for a bit. I said, oh, can I take the Model S? She said, sure. <laughs> so I walked over to the guys that are running the show and said, look, can I take my wife's car? You don't need to worry about doing a, a noise test on it because all the other cars had to be noise tested with their exhaust. So I just jumped in, took it out. I didn't even check tyre pressures or anything, which in hindsight I should have. But anyway, it blew my mind like, just coming out of a corner, planting the throttle, and you got that response immediately. Oh, it's yeah. like, whoa, mm. I, you know, wait on. She's 
lot of fun. Awesome. Was that the last time you took it on a track, or is this going to happen again? No. Uh, <laughs> who, who knows? I ended up. It actually beat the GTR's time, which was wow. amazing. There was a Model Three performance there on the same day, and it was beating everyone. It was number one. It was beating the instructor. It just blew my mind. Like these EVs are a thing. Like this is a four-door car, and it's it's up there with the best. From your work to the work that you did around home with solar panels and so on, our listeners, I know, would be very interested in your approach to charging, Simon. Sure, yeah. So I actually just moved house three months ago, so I'm sort of back to starting it all again. Okay. Um, But in in my old house, I had a lot of solar, I had a house battery, and I had the um, Tesla wall connector. And I used this app that was actually created by some Australian guys it's called Charge HQ and what it does is it makes sure that the car charges just off your rooftop solar so you don't use the grid at all plug it in during the day it regulates the charge and it just uses a rooftop solar it was it was magic so that's how I used to charge I also have a charger at work so it's like great come Perfect. to work charge mm. it plug it in probably sounds like an odd question did you keep the charger I did, yeah. So I had a Tesla wall connector. I um, had it removed from the old house and currently it's sitting in a box waiting to be <laughs> wired up in the new house. So Good need call. that going soon. But for now, the uh, PowerPoint gets us through. So you've got the Model S still, is that correct? I've got the Model S and I bought another one, yes. So <laughs> Talk about diving in. <laughs> diving right in, yep. So the Model S, we were doing a bit of camping. We had bike racks on it, and it's a bit low to the ground. You know, the bike tyres might hit the road here and there. So we thought we need something a bit bigger. So we've gone to the Model Y Performance now. So we've got the Model Y Performance, and this thing's a rocket. Like, it does 0 to 100 in 3.7 seconds. It's it's amazing. You're going to keep the GTR, though, aren't you? Uh, it's com- there's competing demands, as you can imagine. <laughs> At the moment, I come out, I've got to drive to work, I've got to sit in traffic, and I've got two EVs to choose from. From, So I always take the EV. It's just the best car for the traffic. Because you're so knowledgeable about this this space, what stuff are you looking forward to in the relatively, you know, kind of recent future EV-wise, do you reckon? I would really love to see the vehicle-to-grid technology come out. And what I really want the manufacturers to do is bring us out a proper two-door sports car sports EV, car. not a four-door with a, a lot of power, so maybe one day. You've got my vote. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give Redback Technologies a yeah. bit of a plug. Um, if you want to find more out about Redback, tell us about that. Where do they go? Uh, you can search all the socials, Redback Technologies, and we have, our website is redbacktech.com. You've done too good a job. Too easy. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. News time now on the podcast. A few things have caught our attention, not just new vehicle news either. There's a fun yarn coming up, a bit of an industry-related one as well. Nissan has announced an epic pole-to-pole adventure. And we did something very similar on the last episode, but this this adventure goes to a whole new level. 
And when you say adventure, this is a husband and wife duo, Chris and Julie Ramsey. So tell me tell me if you would survive this road trip. Pole to pole, so from the North Pole to the South Pole in an EV. That is wild. How would you go with that? Would you drive or would you be passenger? Mm, oh, that'd be testing, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm not a very good passenger, so I can tell you now. <laughs> I don't think my husband would be up for this challenge, but you can jump online and follow their journey and we can't wait to hear how it goes. And incidentally, go back to the listener library too once you've finished with today's episode. If you didn't catch it, we spoke about a very similar thing with Weber Vaca around his world adventure last time where he went from the Netherlands all the way to Australia and he got people to power him up on the adventure. He would stop in with random people that he'd never met before in a kind of home-built, modified V-Dub Golf. That's a great story. Yeah, I mean, he had that, but these guys are in a Nissan Aria, so, you know, a a modified one to suit their needs. So I I think it's going to be a great journey. MGs, MG4. The reason I want to talk about this is because we've said it several times on the pod about the need to get EVs into a more of a price bracket, everyday affordability. This is close, isn't it? Absolutely. And MG have been leading the way with the pricing, to be honest. So MG4 has been priced. It's just around $44,000. So it's still not cheap by any means, but it is getting there. Three model grades will come in different battery sizes. It's still not the cheapest EV on the Aussie market. The GWM Aura still undercuts it just. Okay. Jack's Tyres. Now, you're probably thinking, why are we addressing this? Is this sponsor related? No, it's not. They've messaged us about the whole notion of being future fit. And we thought this was worthy of conversation, didn't we? Yeah, I think it's great. It kind of, it's like that sort of one-stop shop goes one better. So they've announced that, you know, their goal is to upgrade 70% of their network with solar panels. And they've got a partnership with RACV Solar, but also installing EV charging stations from EV Up. So these charging stations will be free for their franchisees. So I think that's a great thing for small business to do as an incentive, but also, you know, paving the future for them. Great, great initiative. Uh, Now to one that many of our listeners will want to talk about, probably one of the most significant headlines on the car sales site, EV-wise at the moment, Uh, Tesla Model X and Model S have been axed in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And this has been on the cards for a little while. There's been no, there still has been no formal statement from a suspiciously quiet Elon, but yeah. He has been busy with Twitter. Yeah, uh, orders were stalled for over a year now. Anyone that has their deposit down gets their deposit back, but there's a bit of a kicker. So those people will not be getting their Model X or Model S, but they get a $3,000 incentive, a credit essentially that they can use if they order a Model 3. Three. Mm. So there are you know a lot of conditions there. You can't transfer it to anyone else and it's only one per person, but it's a bit of an incentive there. Okay. Now, between episodes, the best place to grab all the latest EV news is, of course, our electric vehicle hub, carsales.com.au forward slash electric. Advice, reviews, pricing and specs, road trip info, all sorts of really useful tips around buying an EV plus Stuff Nadine loves, celeb car news, and more. <laughs> it's our electric vehicle hub, all on the Car Sales website. Listener mailbox. Hey Nadine, we've got mail. <laughs> A couple of people. Um, oh, I need to get all serious here, including actually one from Robert. And this is around three phase and EV charging at home, which we tackled a couple of eps ago, back in episode 10, I think it was. So you'll find that in the library. The short answer is, this is not a one-size-fits-all scenario. And we've actually gone back to our interviewee, Garrick, in that episode on this subject, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. I think the one thing that 
consumers, when you're buying your EV, you need to know, remember, it's your car and your needs. So different brands, different batteries, they're going to take up power in different ways. So if you want, you know, the low and slow charging, then that will suit one kind of person. But if you're the one that wants it fast now, quick as possible, then you may well need three phase, but make sure that your car can cope with that as well. So yeah, it really is different in every scenario. So to Robert and all of those that have emailed, thank you. Uh, We are going to do a deeper dive on this in a forthcoming episode with someone who is way techier than I'm capable of. So keep an ear out for that. If you have a question about EVs or something that's perhaps mentioned in today's episode, if it's sparked a little bit of interest and you'd like us to tackle it, podcast at carsales.com.au. Send us an email or fire in a short voice memo recorded on your phone and you could be on the next episode of What's Under the Bonnet. The race for better batteries is well and truly on. We want greater range and we want shorter charging times and they need to be cheaper, of course. Mm. But what do we know about battery components and how they're sourced? And we kind of know the implications of a, of a supply chain under pressure, right? So what would it look like and what role does Australia have in a, in a global battery market in some ways? Yeah, to better understand this, we need to look at the key materials required, don't we, to mm. produce batteries in the first place. So to break it down for us, we have Director of Mining and Energy Economist at Commonwealth Bank here with us, Vivek Da. Thank you and welcome to What's Under the Bonnet. Oh, thank you. Why don't we start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your role at, uh, at CBA. We've seen you on the Comsec podcast, for example, and so on. Sure. So look, I cover mining and energy commodities for CBA. Mm-hmm. I've been doing that for a number of years now. I think I've clocked just over 11 years. And the focus initially has always been, you know, your traditional mining and energy. So oil, gas, base metals, coal, iron ore. But as we've kind of moved into this energy, energy transition, the question is, what is Australia's role? Mm. And that is increasingly becoming a focal point of, of my research and, and the bank's research. Well, what are the kind of main components when we talk about an EV battery? Sure. So look, w- when it comes to particularly raw materials that we discuss mostly, it's your cathode and your anode, right? So cathode in particular is the one where you, you have your, your lithium, your nickel, your cobalt. Those, those are where the conversations really focus on. But the parts where probably the engineering side is making a lot of advances comes in the electrolyte. And that is, you know, right now it's, it's liquid and that's what really where the energy transfer happens. But as that technology evolves and becomes more advanced, we actually expect that to actually be where the next phase of, of improvements happen. Mm. But I'd say those three, along with the separator, that would really be your battery cell. Mm. And, and those are probably the focal points when we talk about supply chains. The lithium is there for the electrochemical potential. So it's, it's, when you talk about energy density, it's not so much the lithium we're looking at, it's more the nickel. Okay. So the more nickel you have in your battery, the, the higher the, the driving range. And that's why when you talk about the higher spec cars coming out of, say, Europe and, and US, you're trying to increase your nickel intensity of that battery. Cobalt is actually the stabilizer. So when you want the battery to remain stable in performance, that's where the cobalt is used. Now, cobalt is the most expensive if you look at prices for metals. And, and therefore, the move has always kind of been, how can we increase nickel and reduce cobalt? And if you told me this five years ago, I'd say nickel, high nickel cathode chemistries had so much potential over the next decade. But then the emergence of LFP came in, like lithium ferrophosphate. And mm. the improvements we've seen there in energy density is more to do with the engineering and the technology there. And, and that's made the, the equation very different. Now that uses iron and phosphate, 
right? Now, they're not in the same equivalence as nickel and, and cobalt, but that chemistry is showing enormous potential to give you enough driving range in that light and medium segment. And more importantly, it gives you that allowance for penetration into the emerging market. I think anyone that understands EVs knows of lithium, the focus that lithium has in our market. Can we keep up with that demand? Are we exporting? You know, there's a lot of conversation around that. Look, absolutely. When we talk about Australia's role in the lithium market, it is, it is by far the most significant. You know, we're talking 45 to 50% of global lithium supply comes from, from Australia. Now, in terms of where Australia is moving, yes, of course, future investment and keeping up with the rapid increase in, in lithium demand is, is going to be a challenge. You know, we mm. are seeing supply come, say, from China increases, from Argentina, from Canada, from even some African countries. So, you know, keeping up to the speed that we need to by 2030, it is going to be hard for Australia to protect that share of 45 to 50%. In the absence of enough lithium, what will steer the, the future if, if we don't have enough lithium? Will that force other chemical components? This is going to be probably the most interesting space. So I guess just to frame what lithium has to do, right? I think that's going to be the, the most important part. So right now, if you look at 2030, how much does lithium supply have to grow to meet demand? And mm. this is all dependent on how you view the, the future in terms of degrees changed in, in the global temperature. So if you believe we're going to stay with the status quo, global temperatures are going to rise, say, 2.6 degrees relative to the pre-industrial age, which is where you know, we're really heading we're still talking four to four and a half times increase in, say, lithium demand. You know, so it is a significant increase. So mm. m- maybe three and a half to, to four times, but, you know, we're talking in that range already. When you move towards the under two degree world, so say a 1.75 degree world, we're talking really five to five and a half times of current nickel supply has to be expanded by 2030. So, you know, it is it is a very sharp increase of any commodity to ask that in the next eight years, this is what you have to do. Now, you know, in terms of lithium supply, there looks to be enough. And if you look at what investment and projects in the pipeline, you can probably achieve that by 2030. When you look further out to 2050, and that's where you really have acceleration of just transition to EVs, then the question is, do we have enough lithium? And I think that's where everyone is questioning, do we have the right chemistries? The one thing I'd say is look at what China is doing to mm. know where the chemistry shifts can happen. And if you look at companies like Cattel, which is a very strong R&D player in the battery space, they are looking at other chemistries like, say, sodium ion. Now, it's still in its infancy. Its energy density is 15% less than your nickel-free and cobalt-free lithium-ion battery chemistries, but that is where you could potentially see a big pickup if truly China believes there is not enough lithium Mm -hmm. or that they are being held captive to lithium supply. But if we had to look at the other key raw materials needed in the transition, cobalt, significant amounts of supply come from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So 80% we're talking about. So a very strong dependence. Now, what makes that such a big risk? And when we talk about ESG, this is specifically now talking more about the social risks. Is mm-hmm. There's a lot of artisanal mining and child labor is a key problem there. Mm. So how can we ensure that that cobalt is, is not mined with child labor? It's very challenging. So, you know, for an Australian company and Australian resources, this is another opportunity that, mm. you know, if you can secure the cobalt supply, which, which is going to still be needed despite the shift away probably in the battery chemistries, it is still going to be have a market need if you can, one, 
credential it as being almost green cobalt. So try and do it with as low carbon as possible. And, and ethically mined. And mm. ethically mined. Mm. And, and that's where the opportunity when we look at cobalt. Nickel is, is equally another opportunity. Australia does have nickel resources. But what we've seen in the nickel industry is that Indonesia has just come in and just dominated the supply chain. So they have built out enormous nickel supply chain in Indonesia backed by Chinese investment. Now, this is going to be a very interesting turn of events if we look in the next few years is the entire movement towards onshoring in Europe and US has been almost more about decreasing your dependence on China. Now, is Indonesia going to be seen as an extension of the Chinese arm mm. or is it going to be treated as separate? So once again, Australia can play that role of being a supplier because it means you're delinking from the Chinese dependence. But to some of the processes that, that Indonesia is going to use is actually quite carbon intensive. So they okay. have a challenge to make that nickel low carbon. So if Australia, Australian nickel can prove itself as, as a green nickel producer, that in itself is another opportunity. So, you know, there is opportunities outside of lithium. But I think lithium is 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 perhaps the the biggest opportunity for Australia in in the global energy transition. That, that battery chemistry can have a huge impact on on performance, right? So some people are likening battery design to a a kind of gold rush. Is that true? Do you reckon in your in your opinion? Yeah, look, it's it's very very nimble. Mm. In the last year alone, the kind of shift towards the nickel free and and cobalt free chemistries like say, lithium ferrophosphate, LFP batteries, that has been very significant. It's around 30% of, of battery chemistry last year. But you look at where it was a few years ago, no one would have anticipated just how well it has done. Mm. And a big part of that has been the engineering breakthroughs done in China. So a lot of that technology has been developed there. So your call on where you see these chemistries going is going to make a big determination of what kind of metal demand we'll see in the future. Vivek, if you have a uh, like a pub conversation with proud Aussies, they often sort of go, "Why are we why are we mining this and sending it overseas when we could be having a, a greater, a bigger part in in the whole notion of battery manufacturing in our own country? Can, can we play? Can Australia play a bigger part in in the battery manufacturing of the future? Do you think? Look, it's I, I think it's going to be a little more specialized. Mm -hmm. Like, where is our competitive advantage? Mm. And you know, if we go down to processing of commodities, I think that's if we look abroad and see where policy focus is from US and Europe, the US is deploying 370 billion into this, you know? And that's that's across the board, not just EVs, but we're talking Maritime hydrogen as well. Everything, yeah, everything yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Europe has a 250 billion euro package that they've deployed. Mm -hmm. You know, competing with these kind of dollars, you really have to ask, where is it that we have our niche? And, and I think focusing on that is more critical than trying to take an approach where it's like, oh, we can just do it all here. Mm. Because not only is the expertise needed, we also need to have the labor, the supply chains all move to make it happen. And it's very challenging given the pull, particularly to the US for a lot of this mm. right now. And so I think chemicals is where we should focus on. Mm -hmm. And then from there, see where the opportunity sits. I don't think anyone can say how the supply chains will look in 10 years. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly going to be a risk if we kind of have a scattergun approach. That is going to be probably how this will play out, but it, it very much depends on policy support. Vehicle end of life and battery end of life is, is sort of another topic that people talk about. Is there a scenario or a chemical structure that's better? And should we be placing some onus on manufacturers? What can they be doing to make sure that batteries are better and can be recycled? Yeah, look, this is, this is another major part of, of a lot of policy development is the full circular economy. 
So when you look at what's happening in even China, Europe, US, this battery recycling has gained a lot of traction. Now, naturally, when you had nickel and, and cobalt being a big factor in your batteries, it was actually far more economically attractive to recycle. Right? So if you move towards chemistries which are cheaper, you then make battery recycling less appealing. Mm-hmm. And in, in my view, if you're doing that, you have to almost put more of the onus on the producer or the manufacturer to almost come in and be like, you need to produce a battery that's easy to recycle. If we get this right in the beginning, it solves an enormous problem down the road. And I think every policymaker realizes that and wants to make sure that this, this problem is nailed early. Because if you let this drag on and you let manufacturers just do what they want, you'll just create far more waste. And that's probably the, the last thing you want to do when you holistically are trying to reduce carbon and, mm. and reduce waste in, in the industry. Some great potential, great tech in the, in the pipeline I mean, some, some stuff around recently in relation to you know, batteries with a, with a thousand kilometre range that could potentially power planes and so on. Is it a good sign of, of an electric future or how electric will the future kind of look like in, in your mind, do you think? So, so with that, and, and I guess that refers to the cattail development, yes. Yes. right? So, so in terms of what, what that demonstrates is just how battery chemistries and engineering. So it's not just the chemistry side, it's the engineering side Sorry. in order to improve the energy density. And I think that's what's coming through is that as that becomes much stronger, the electrification story becomes that much stronger too. And th- th- I guess this is how the transition in our view is, is really going to be playing out is like the world should be electrifying everything they can. And then the residual you try and solve in whatever technology wins the race. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you talk about a stronger energy density in, in, in a battery, you're actually talking more about hydrogen having less of a role to play in some of these sectors. Because, you know, the, the higher energy density means more mileage, which means you penetrate more into, say, long-haul trucking. You penetrate into, say, aviation, shipping. That leaves a smaller pool for, for hydrogen. You know, and, and hydrogen fuel cells. So mm. that's probably the main implication from a much stronger battery sector. And hydrogen should almost be happy that it's, it's playing a smaller role there because hydrogen in itself is less efficient than electrons from electrification. Like we're talking almost three times more renewable power needs to be deployed if you're using hydrogen fuel cells. So it, it is still a very strong argument that electrification has more to go. And, and I think that's a positive sign. What excites you about the EV market? Look, I, I would just say how, how nimble it is. Like, it, it, it's, it's fascinating that everyone can come out with a forecast, but it's, it's where, you know, the engineers are really driving the action. And, and I think that's exciting to, to know that, you know, we're, we're almost thinking back to who's going to be the Edison, who's going to be the, mm. the you know, those kind of vendors. And mm. I think that's, that's really fascinating in the EV space. This has been really insightful. If people want to keep up with the market, best place to go, have a listen to the Comsec Market Update podcast. They can do that right here on the listener app, which you can get for free. And they give expert insights as the market opens and closes each day. So make sure you check that out. Vivek, thank you once again for joining us. No, thank you. It was a pleasure. That is it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Next month, commercialization. And I don't mean us monetizing different oh, things. <laughs> you thought I was going to do a deal of some kind, didn't you? A watch deal for Nadine. Uh, now, we're talking about businesses who have 
change to EV and the whole notion of like commercial vehicles being EV and so on, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, I think, again, it's something that small businesses can have a big impact. So, yeah, we're going to try and look at some local businesses that have switched to, say, a delivery vehicle as an EV. Cool. We'd love you to join us for that. We'd love you to rate and review the podcast if you're enjoying it. And for those that have done that, thank you very much. We will catch you next time, everybody. Bye for now. Listener.